Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. I'm Abby Martin. And I'm Mike Preisner. North Korea is in the news for firing two ballistic missiles last week, the first such weapons test in a year. This is being painted as a dangerous provocation against its neighbors South Korea and Japan, and of course, the United States. The U.S. media is calling it the first major test for Biden because the empire must respond to this threat. While the missile test itself is nothing out of the ordinary, these events always revive a huge campaign of demonization against North Korea. Because the DPRK is such a closed-off society, little information is really known about it, and reports are difficult to verify, which is why Western media can fabricate almost anything about the North Korean government and society, and people will, for the most part, believe it. It is widely known that North Korea has an undemocratic political system where you cannot challenge the rule of the Communist Party. This is the main point of focus for the U.S. empire, despite the fact that they have close relationships with many countries with far more extreme holds on political power and repression. What upsets the U.S. the most is North Korea's economic and social system. And it's important to differentiate between these two. The corporate media and political establishment want you to think that North Korea is a dystopian hellhole where everyone is starving and enslaved. Any photos or videos depicting happiness are dismissed as fake and staged propaganda. But they don't want Americans to go see for themselves, which is why they've banned us from ever traveling there. They want you to focus on their form of government because without any historical or political context, it is very offensive to liberal sensibilities. We're going to get into that context later in the episode, as well as address the most common criticisms. But first, wanted to explore the latter the economic and social life for average people in North Korea. This is critical because part of U.S. war propaganda is creating the belief that targeted peoples are desperate for liberation or live so terribly that war might actually make their lives better. <laughs> the DPRK has a slogan, seeing is believing. They want Americans to come visit the country and see for themselves what it's like. If it's as bad as they say it is, why wouldn't the U.S. government want us to go see with our own eyes to confirm everything we've been told? Well, that's exactly what our guest today, John Preisner, did in 2018 when he went to North Korea for two weeks. And we're going to interview him today about what daily life there is really like, as well as the bigger picture that is always missing from the discussion. John Preisner is not only Mike's baby brother, he's also an integral part of the Empire Files team and has been since the beginning. He's done audio engineering on almost every episode with original music, including the music in this episode under his stage name, Anahadron, as well as an original, completely epic score for our feature film, Gaza Fights for Freedom, which you can find on gazafightsforfreedom.com. It's an absolutely beautiful and heartbreaking journey just to hear the score of this film in isolation. I really encourage you to go check it out. John, you've been behind the scenes for so long and behind so many other great podcasts like Eyes Left and The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, and now are coming out of the shadows to bring your voice to a podcast for the very first time. Welcome to the program, John. Thanks so much for having me. I sort of feel like I've been here all along. <laughs> <laughs> John, let's just briefly address this missile test. What do you think this was about? 
Yeah. Um, no, of course. I, I think it's, you know, gotten a lot of attention. Um, but like you said, it's not really out of the ordinary for a military to test the weapons that they have. And in fact, this missile test was completely within UN Security Council guidelines, even on uh, the kind of tests that North Korea can do. And, you know, looking at it in context, it came just one week after the end of a U.S.-South Korea joint military exercise. Um, a, you know, much more uh, pointed and deliberate and intentional rehearsal for war as North Korea sees it uh, that took place just a week earlier. Um, so the exercises of the U.S. were taking place, interestingly, because of all the public pressure of the peace movement that had resisted the war exercises, they actually had only agreed to do scaled back military exercises in which there was actually not on the ground participation. It was a like a cyber war exercises. But what's interesting about that is that it was specifically for the transfer of command of the South Korean military to South Korea. Because if there is ever a war, the South Korean military is under the command of the United States because it's a still basically a uh, neo-colony of the United States. So they had to have this whole exercise, which beyond just being, you know, Instead of a weapons test, that could be anything. It was specifically a rehearsal for how to go to war with North Korea, involving this very clear colonial relationship in response, you know, to this real threat that's not only um, it's kind of a psychological warfare against North Korea, but, you know, these military exercises, in addition to that, they could become a real invasion at any time um, with all this preparation and all this coordination happening. So, uh, you know, the leadership of the DPRK has... Uh, realized or it seems to be under the impression that they're not getting their way with the U.S. by simply treating them as a good faith diplomatic negotiating partner. And they're having to rely on some of the leverage that they have with the technology, the nuclear technology that they've created, um, which has been, you know, really a very skillful display, seeing how they've really maneuvered to put the U.S. in this position where they have to respond and coming so close uh, I mean, not to ramble, I know we'll talk about uh, some some of the stuff more coming up, but it seems like they they need to bring the United States to the negotiating table. They need to end the war, and they're they're not getting that um, by just waiting around for the good graces of the United States. They're having to take matters into their own hands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we just constantly hear about how North Korea having nukes is just such a threat to the world. I mean, of course, to us specifically here in the U.S., which is just totally absurd considering it's just a deterrence from the U.S. in the first place, which we're going to get into. And like, just remember that false alarm in Hawaii where people were like jumping into manholes and stuff because <laughs> they thought North Korea had launched a nuke at them. And it's just like a constant white noise, like in the background, thinking that North Korea could like nuke us at any time. You know, like that's what the media and political establishment really make us think, you know, with the propaganda campaign. And I think it just is worth iterating the scope of what we're actually talking about here in comparison of what, you know, what we're told. The U.S. empire has 6,000 nuclear warheads, thousands of ballistic missiles, trident submarines that carry nuclear weapons. The U.S. launches ballistic missiles in tests every week. And the nuclear weapons that this government has surround the entire planet. Um, the DPRK has, I think, a couple dozen uh, nuclear warheads. Um, their military budget is the budget of NYPD, I think even smaller than the budget of NYPD. 
And when you compare that to the U.S., I mean, you already know that bigger than the next 13 countries combined or whatever. I mean, this government is spending $1 trillion, close to $1 trillion when you account for really the true cost of everything per year on defense, Mike. Well, I mean, the interesting thing, John, is about the, you know, the U.S. deterrence from like a Korean nuclear strike. It's like all of the generals in the Pentagon know that Korea would never launch a first strike against the United States, let alone I mean, anyone, any other country in Asia. So the generals know that the only way that Korea would launch a strike of a nuclear weapon is if the United States used nuclear weapons on them. It's like, you know, there's no debate about that. So it's really not about defending anyone. But it is interesting that this is obviously about them just sending a message to Biden being like, we need to be a priority for your administration. You know, they were so close to a peace agreement under Trump. You know, the, the Olympics thing happened. That was a really huge deal that North and South were there together as one in the Olympics, walking together. I mean, there's the crossing over the demilitarized zone. I mean, that first uh, meeting between the the U.S. and Korea, um, where they had actually come to, uh, up with a peace agreement that like the the North Koreans were like happy with and were like, yes, we're all about this. And then it all just got destroyed at, at, by the Trump people at the Hanoi conference. And then so they were very close. And then now they're like, uh, you know, like you said, they're tired of waiting and they just want to say. So it's interesting also that the framing is that the, the missile strike, what you're saying, was not to menace the United States and say we can attack you or its, or our, our, its neighbors in Asia to say we are prepared to launch a strike against you. The strike's intent was to get the United States to come to the negotiating table to create peace. They want peace. And they're like, if you're not going to make us a priority of your administration, we're going to do something that you have to respond to, which means coming to the negotiating table so we can you know, finally end the war. Um, and Abby, as you were mentioning the nuke stuff and actually the number of nukes that Korea has versus the number that the United States has, uh, you were telling me something interesting about when Korea actually even got nukes and why. Yeah, I was surprised to learn from Brian Becker's program, the socialist program. People should really check it out. I got a lot of facts from this episode from that. But I was surprised to learn how North Korea ended up with nukes in the first place because in the 90s, they halted their nuclear weapons program, abandoned all development of nukes, joined the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty with Clinton, and were in compliance with it, right? Under Clinton, they had these negotiations going. So what changed? Well, it was George W. fucking Bush's axis of evil speech. You know, 9-11 happens. All of a sudden, we're invading Afghanistan and Iraq. And then all of a sudden, North Korea is lumped in with like, you know, it's just so absurd. The axis of evil was Iraq, Iran, and North Korea as the next three targets for total destruction and regime change by the U.S. empire. So understandably so, North Korea resumed its nuclear weapons program as a deterrent. It sees what happened with Iraq. It sees what's going on with Iran. Having nuclear weapons is the only way. And and, (laughs) can't forget Libya, right? Sending weapons inspectors in being compliant with these deals like Iran was, it doesn't change anything, right? So the nuclear deterrence is really the only thing that has staved off North Korea from getting invaded and all the rest. Um, John, I mean, you were there, which is just so baffling, I think, to a lot of people. It's like, oh my God, how the fuck did you get in North Korea? Because I'm sure it was just all a guided propaganda tour. We all saw the Vice special of Shane Smith and... (laughs) how just uh, curated everything was for him. And I'm sure that everything that you saw was just propped up for you by the government and 
all of that, right? So let's talk about how you got into the country, how long you were there, where you went, who you stayed with, just lay it all out. So uh, I've been an organizer with the Answer Coalition for a number of years and um, had been doing annual trips with a professor, uh, Professor Chung, Professor Kiel Chung, who has an organization called Glocal Encounters, and he would do regular trips to the DPRK. I think he's been traveled to the DVRK over 100 times. Um, it was a South Korean resident, but was you know, because of traveling to the DPRK, now exiled and not able to re-immigrate to South Korea, um, but is a, you know, fighter for reunification and um, took us to a, uh, you know, a very different experience that I think a lot of tourists have because of his, you know, close connections with people and personal um, relationships with different people in the country. We uh, were going and basically every day was spent traveling to some city or town, meeting with as many people as we could in as many different areas of society as possible, being around in the town, talking to random people on the street, um, going and getting food and taking the subway and, you know, all the things that a normal person would do, um, driving everywhere by car, getting out and stopping places. Um, so, you know, this idea that we are just on like in Disneyland or something and only seeing people who are just like ready to act is just insane because you know they <laughs> how would you do that? it's like be like the truman show it just it would cost <laughs> trillions how do you know you weren't in the truman show yeah right i mean they're all you could pass by people and you'd see people just hanging out on the side of the road and like laughing and something like <laughs> like they're ready like they know we're coming there's an american coming yeah. like all these sirens go off like yeah. two miles in advance and everyone like gets in position and everything so i mean in terms of your traveling the country like do you feel like you saw a good amount of the country i mean 25 million people in korea you know it's not a small place but right. do you feel like you traveled like you got it you know urban and rural like geographically you went to many areas of the country or what was your experience with that yeah we so right we started off in Pyongyang, which is obviously the, the most populated city. It's an urban area. Um, you know, we went all the way south to the DMZ. We went to farming villages and like west and like center uh, North Korea. Uh, you know, we went all the way north to um, to where the mountains are. People like hike and stuff like that. Uh, you know, we didn't go all the way to the east coast because we are a limited time, but the majority of the population lives on the west coast. And there's not, you know, that many cross-country roads that exist. So we saw a large percentage of the country. Then that's one of the things people always say, you know, like, yeah, like, oh, you just saw Pyongyang. Like you didn't see, you know, we we went to the lowest level of development because there is, of course, like any developing society, our country, there is a difference in development from urban and rural areas because of the, you know, material logistics of getting something. Roads are extremely expensive to maintain, um, you know, and, and so, um, you know, the lowest level of development is still like really nice. Like you live in like a cottage that your family has lived in for hundreds or thousands of years. You know, you have a farm. Your farm is is a co-op. You know, your neighbors like you decide how you're going to grow, what you're going to grow. Did you you had a government handler that was with the trip, right? We did not. We're not with anyone who was officially with the government. Um, we were not with anyone who was a government official or any kind of government operative. We were with private citizens who, you know, I'm sure that the government knew that we were there. Um, yeah. uh, and of course, we were in there in many ways on like a peace delegation. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we got to do things that other tourists don't get to do. Um, you know, we visited um, it, like an orphanage, um, but we were with uh, private journalists, translators. Yeah. And well, let me hosts. ask you this. So as someone, because they say, oh, well, there's someone who is from 
locals who are showing you around, right? Who could have been a secret government handler. Right. They weren't officially <laughs> with the government, but they had a, a task to only let you see what you were supposed to see. Right. So what was your experience with like seeing what you wanted to see in a way that like, you know, if you were to say you were driving and you saw something, you're like, oh, let's go look at that. And then the person who was assigned to your trip, you know, would was it possible for them to say, no, no, don't go look at that. You know, we're going to go over here. <laughs> right. but, like what kind of freedom of movement did you have with like your own, your delegation to say, to explore on your own and the role that the per people from North Korea who were with you, they played in like guiding what you were able to see. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good question. And, you know, we, yeah, so we had our guides with us. Um, and yeah, exactly. We could go and say, hey, we want to go to this restaurant. We want to we want to stop in this place. Like we were walking around on the street um, and, you know, they were with us when we were walking around, you know, partially because it would kind of freak people out to see some, you know, random <laughs> Americans and, you know, walking around. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, not that we were met with any hostility. Everyone is like really happy to see us, especially, um, you know, when they knew that we were, you know, fighting, uh, you know, for peace. No one was like guarding our hotel rooms. Like we could have walked out at any time. Uh, we were, we would went on a hike and like our, our, uh, <laughs> these like highly trained operatives that were supposed to watch us, like got tired and like got really far behind us on the trail. So we were just like off, like in the <laughs> mountains, like you saw the speaker system and like, yeah. <laughs> and all these, it was actually funny because around that same time, like all these kids, these big, like flock of like little kids was like running around following us being like oh like uh, <laughs> americans are here and they're like um they're yelling <laughs> they're like we love you Aww. we are very happy and it's like <laughs> um yeah I <laughs> did you have any experiences like where you were like say you were driving and you saw something and you're like skirt like detour we want to go look yeah. at that you know yes. like give it, tell us something one of those stories. Yeah, we would definitely do that. We would um, we would stop um, uh, to see like different flower stands or different, um, you know, different towns like hospitality is really important. So they really wanted to make sure that we, you know, had a really good experience. So we made a last minute. We we had were passing uh, an amusement park with all these different rides that were happening. Uh, and so we wanted to stop and do that. So they, you know, randomly took us to the amusement park where you know, it was amusement park for Koreans. It's, you know, there wasn't tourists there. It was just Korean families going out, having a, having a night out uh, at the amusement park. And, um, you know, took us to all the rides. Uh, I got really sick and, and had to go to the bathroom <laughs> by myself and uh, throw up <laughs> um, because we had just, you know. a psychological <laughs> operation. And like, <laughs> brainwash yeah. you. <laughs> um, you know, so, right. And uh, so it was, if it was a psychological operation, <laughs> then they had like every contingency <laughs> planned um, for our every whim. <laughs> well, you mentioned several things that are really interesting, like, um, um, you know, little kids that you saw who said really cute things. And like, I've I've actually seen people be like, all of these kids are actors, you know, like showing like <laughs> videos where kids are playing in the snow and it's just like, this is all fake. And it's like, that. it just makes no sense. But um, beyond that, a lot of people will say like, okay, anyone, you can't talk to anyone. You're always going to be watched and followed. And this is what I've been told, like going to Cuba, which is just like hilarious. <laughs> like, uh, have you been to Cuba? Um, or like Venezuela, like we were told you won't be able to really have an honest time. You're going to be, you know, told what to do and say. And like, if you interview anyone on the street, that's, you're not going to get honest answers, right? About anything. 
which is completely the opposite of the experience that we had in both countries. Cuba, people were extremely honest about if whether or not they disapproved of the government and communism and all of that. And the same with Venezuela, of course. Like people were like very vocal about hating Maduro and such. <laughs> um, so you talked to so many people there. Were people openly critical? Who did you actually, when you say like you talked to several people, was it just like in the places that you went? Were you talking to random people on the street? Like who were the people that you were getting feedback from about about what you're talking about? Sorry, everybody, but that is the end of the preview for this episode. There is well over an hour left of some really insightful stuff. You know, we also address all of the most common criticisms, the Kim dynasty, the elections, hunger, the role of the military, and so much more. Um, Also about the history and context of all of these things that is always missing. The full episode is only on patreon.com slash empirefiles for just $2. You can get access to all of our exclusive podcasts, which is the only way we are able to make all of our video content free for everyone. Thanks for listening.